So Luke 23, starting at verse 26. As they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large crowd trailed behind, including many grief-stricken women. But Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are coming when they will say, Fortunate indeed are the women who are childless, the wombs that have not borne a child and the breasts that have never nursed. People will beg the mountains, fall on us and plead with the hills, bury us. For if these things are done when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the Skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. The sign was fastened to the cross above him with these words, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, So, you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself. And us too, while you're at it. But the other criminal protested. Don't you fear God, even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Loving Father, thank you so much that you've given us your word and that we can hear you speak to us now in the Bible. And we pray now you would do that and give us a deeper and a, whole, a greater understanding of the, the whole Easter event, especially of what we have on Good Friday as we consider Christ crucified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's now a year since we heard about the infamous Aussie cricket ball tampering incident. Uh, I think it's fair to say that Aussie cricket, and in particular the men's competition, uh, still hasn't really got over it. Uh, it. Deep down, you know, we're all happy to see people push boundaries and to improve their chances of winning, but sometimes we just, well, they just don't seem to get away with it. I reckon that's probably why we love the winged keel of the America's Cup yacht back in 1983, if you were alive at the time to remember it. Uh, it's kind of that Aussie larrikin sort of way where we, we love pushing boundaries, taking things to the edge of the law, um, and we love it when it eventually means that we can win, like we did on that great America's Cup day a long, long time ago. Whether it's our conflict, our, 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 um, our ancestry, or whether it's the Anzac spirit, we know that we're happy to kind of dance to the edge of what is legal in order to give us the best chance of winning. That is, until we cross the line and we get caught. And then we 
viciously turn on ourselves as a nation. And I think that's what we've seen in the last year as the backlash from the ball tampering continues to have an impact. I mean, over the weeks and months after Bancroft and Warner and Smith were busted, we've felt a whole range of emotions. They were arrogant. They were naive. They were foolish. But I think we also, to some extent, have had some sympathy for these guys who, who made one really dumb decision that is going to impact them for the rest of their lives. But in the midst of all our emotions, I think there's one that came to the surface in all of that. And that is the desire for justice. We have a desire for justice. Somehow we all felt that what these cricketers did was, was almost like a, a personal attack on the Australian way of life. And when people feel like they've been personally harmed like that, as all Aussies did, as indignant as we felt, we want justice. Someone's got to get punished for this. And that punishment has got to be serious and severe. But as things were revealed about the crime of these cricketers, it seemed that maybe an innocent person was punished. Now, obviously, Smith was rightly condemned because he approved the action, and he was the captain after all. But it seems it may not have really been his idea, and... and all the politics and the dysfunction between him and Warner meant that he wasn't really able to control things like this very well. You can't, I think, feel, you know, not feel a bit of sympathy for Smith in all of this because it doesn't seem altogether fair that all of that that he had was stripped away from him for someone else's stupid idea. See, generally, we feel a bit uncomfortable when an innocent person is punished for something they didn't do. I mean, yes, he wasn't innocent, but you wonder whether the punishment fit the crime. Because sometimes, we all know this, it, it, it really does seem wrong to punish an innocent person. Or maybe when we punish someone more harshly than they deserve. And I think this is why Good Friday should make all of us at least a little uncomfortable, or very uncomfortable. You see, this first Good Friday, an innocent man was sentenced to death. The most perfect, sinless, innocent man who ever lived was executed in shame for something he didn't deserve. And really, that's got to make us squirm. But the reason that all this had to happen is because Jesus' death was a sacrifice. He sacrificed his life so that his followers could avoid the punishment we deserved. He swapped his perfection for our imperfection. He swapped his innocence for our insolence. He swapped his sinlessness for our sin. He gave himself as a sacrifice. He gave himself as a sacrifice. And to help us understand more about this, we're going to look at the historical account of Jesus' death as recorded by Luke. It's in chapter 23 of Luke's Gospel, and it's from verses 32 to 56. It's a large portion of what Tim has already read out to us in the second reading. And the action starts at the actual moment of the crucifixion, verses 32 and 33. We read that two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with Jesus. And when they came to a place called the Skull, they nailed him to the cross. 
and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. A total of three people were crucified with Jesus. The innocent man was in the middle and he was hanging between two guilty men. All three of them will experience death together. They will experience the same horrific death at the same time. And as this tragic scene is described to us, we hear Jesus say these things. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Right at that point, Jesus is fighting for his life. Every single breath was painful and difficult. And yet in that, he finds the strength to ask God to forgive his enemies. I think what we have here is a snapshot of the heart of Jesus. As he faced death, all he could think of was others. All Jesus could think of at that time was others. All he could think about was forgiving his enemies. And even though it seems remarkable, it really is to be expected of Jesus. Because after all, that's the reason that he died in the first place. He died that we might be forgiven as we sang in the first hymn. And it was only by his swap of the own innocence of him for our guilt that he could actually make that happen. And we'll find out more about that in just a moment. But next we find out what was happening to the people around him. Uh, We see in the second half of verse 34 that they gambled for his clothes. We read, and the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The the expensive outer garments that were given to him when he was in the palace were now more valuable than the man who had just worn them. (laughs) Amazing, isn't it? The irony of that. And it reminds us of the humiliation that Jesus experienced as he hung naked or close to it as he gasps for breath. Jesus suffered terrible humiliation beyond our imagination well next we read that the people just stood there around him and watched but as the rulers were there those who had orchestrated his unjust death uh, they were far more involved than just that we read in verse 35 that the crowd watched and the leaders scoffed You'd think he'd be humiliated enough. The leaders scoffed. Ha! He saved others! <laughs> Let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. They sneered at Jesus. You know, they knew that God's Messiah was supposed to be powerful enough to save others. And because Jesus was hanging powerless and helpless, they seemed to think it showed that Jesus was a fraud that he was a fake. Because if Jesus really has the superpowers that he claims, then if he can't save even himself, he's got to be a fake then. And the soldiers say a similar thing. Verse 36 and 37, they mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Maybe that's what the soldiers always did. It was just part of their job to further humiliate and inflict pain on those who were being crucified. I mean, they had a pretty horrible job, didn't they? They had to carry out this gruesome punishment. 
And maybe I, I wonder, uh, as a bit of empathy for these soldiers, I, I wonder, as they have this gruesome job, that maybe it was a survival mechanism for them, that they just had to look down so much on those who were being crucified in this horrible way, maybe to dehumanise their victims so that they could cope with it. And they offered here wine vinegar. And they did it, it seems, so that they might take some of the pain away and maybe relax Jesus so that he might give up the fight a little bit sooner so that he didn't have to survive just as long. But to put him out of his misery if you can numb his, his ability to live. But as they offer this relief, they mock him with the same taunts as the rulers. They offer relief as they mock him. See, if Jesus is the king of the Jews, why did it turn out like this? Why are the Jews, of all people, sneering at their king? Something seems to have gone wrong here. And why is God's Messiah letting them get away with it? I mean, really? Well, why, why do you stand? Why do you just hang there, Jesus? Why don't you use those powers at least to save yourself? Well, the reason that the people at the foot of the cross were teasing Jesus like this is, is because of the sign that was above his head. We read about in verse 38 that a sign was fastened above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. Now, the Jews hated that sign because they didn't believe it was true. Uh, it was offensive to them. But Pontius Pilate, who was a Roman and not a Jew, he, he kind of was pretty happy to put it there, kind of a little, little bit of a, a jeer at the domestic politics between the Romans and the Jews. But maybe it's even the case that Pontius Pilate had a sneaking suspicion that these words might in fact be true. Or maybe he just liked to tease the Jews. But either way, it stood there as a claim that people all reacted to. They reacted, the people reacted to the statement that Jesus is king. And even though it seemed like the least kingly moment for the true king of the Jews, I mean, this of all things you would say this is a kingly moment? It did, not at all. But it was. This was, in fact, the most regal moment of this ruler. And this is what we'll now see as the story continues to unfold. Because we now move from the people at ground level to a remarkable discussion between the three crucified men. And it starts with the negative reaction of one of the two criminals. Verse 39. One of the criminals hanging beside Jesus scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. Breathless, the, the first criminal hurled insults at Jesus. He, he, he spends his precious last moments and, and his precious last breaths in an angry attack upon Jesus. And his words basically just pick up what the soldiers had said. If you're the Messiah, save yourself. And while you're at it, save us too. See, the rulers sneered, saying Jesus couldn't save. And the soldiers mocked, saying Jesus couldn't save. And a criminal insulted, saying Jesus couldn't save. 
Uh, did you notice the same word three times there? Save. They all knew that saving people was Jesus' job. If he had a business card, it would say, Jesus of Nazareth, I save people. After all, he said, I've come to seek and to save those who were lost. That's what he said he'd do. And now the rulers, the soldiers, and even this criminal call him an utter failure. If you can't save your own life, then you're a fraud. If you can't save yourself, you're a failure. But they completely misunderstood Jesus' mission. Everyone there, in fact, seemed to have missed this, except for one other person, the second criminal. And this criminal uses his precious final breaths, firstly to rebuke the first criminal, verses 40 and 41. The other criminal protested, Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. You see, the second criminal returns fire upon the insults of the first criminal and his words shine light on that man's hypocrisy. He says, don't you fear God? See, on the one hand, he's reminding that first criminal that all people will be judged by God for what we've done. All people will be judged by God. You know, anyone who doesn't fear God is like a person walking on a skyscraper rooftop without any fear of heights. See, God has given every human a conscience and deep down we all know that we are guilty of wrongdoing. And it gets easier to suppress that built-in sin protection system as we go through life because we, we do the wrong things and we listen less and less to that inner voice inside us. And it becomes so much easier for us to forget that God is going to judge everyone when they die for every wrong thing that they shouldn't have done and every right thing that they should have done. But it's also possible that when that second criminal rebukes the first criminal, he might even recognise at that point that Jesus is God. But having brought God into the picture, the second criminal tells off the first guy because they both know that they are guilty of their crime. But the second guy makes it clear that Jesus is not. Jesus is innocent. Jesus is being punished for something he has not done. He is taking the blame when he's innocent. See, the Two criminals are punished justly, but Jesus is not. Jesus has done nothing to deserve any punishment, let alone public execution. But why? Why is Jesus being punished for something he didn't do? And what might this have to do with his decision not to save himself from this punishment when he could? Well, before we consider this, we should return to the action and hear what the second criminal now says to Jesus. Because remember, this second guy has already done two things. Firstly, he's recognised that he is guilty of his own punishment. He recognised that he's done wrong and he deserves to be executed for doing wrong. And secondly, he's realised that Jesus is innocent of his crime. He knows that Jesus has done nothing wrong. 
Plus, it seems, he might also recognise that Jesus is actually God, or at very least is in fact the king of the Jews that reflects the sign above his head. And so with that in mind, what would you expect the second criminal, the good one, the good guy, to say to Jesus? What is the word that everybody else has been using to taunt Jesus? Save. Let him save himself, said the rulers. Save yourself, said the soldiers. Save yourself and us, said the first criminal. It's all about whether Jesus has the power to save. And so the words that you would expect the second criminal to say to Jesus would be, Jesus, save me. But that's not what he says. Verse 42, he said, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. The second criminal asks Jesus to remember him. Don't forget me when it comes to time of judgment, Jesus. Remember my confession of my own guilt. Remember that, that I think you're innocent. And remember that I think you're the king of the Jews, the Messiah, the Christ. Remember me when you come into your kingdom as king, as I believe you are. In this helpless state, this man throws himself on the mercy of Jesus. He trusts in the power and the authority of Jesus. This man here who is only a few breaths away from death. This man who had not saved himself, Jesus, is the man that the second criminal asks to remember him. And the answer from Jesus is straight to the point. Verse 43, Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. No doubt. No hesitation. Jesus is certain. And he promises this man a place in his kingdom. He promises this criminal a place in his kingdom. A place far away from the effects of sin and death. A place where there's no more pain. A place where there are no more tears. A place where there is no more conflict. A place where there is no more fear. A place where we no longer will hurt our loved ones. A place where we will no longer be hurt by our loved ones. A place where we will no longer see destruction and everything that is horrible. This man had done nothing to deserve this gift of forgiveness. But now he's given a place in paradise. All this guy could do at this point was acknowledge his own guilt and follow Jesus as his king. I reckon if he wasn't hanging up there, he'd say, can I do something, Jesus? But he can't do a thing. And yet Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise today. Full acceptance, right there, right then. It doesn't really seem fair, does it? It doesn't really seem fair that this man who confesses that he deserves death. He says, we deserve death. I mean, this guy has done some seriously bad stuff to deserve death like that. And yet, 
at that very moment, Jesus says, you are forgiven. You have paradise in my kingdom. It just sort of doesn't quite seem fair, does it? Jesus gives him an unqualified forgiveness and blessing. Paradise itself. Through a simple heartfelt request. But how can that be possible? Well, it goes back to our earlier question. Why is Jesus being punished for something he didn't do? Why is he being executed even though he was innocent? Well, the answer is ultimately simple. He chose to swap his own innocence for our guilt. He swapped his sinlessness for our sin. He took God's anger upon himself rather than have God give it to us. And it all required Jesus to be punished for a crime he didn't commit so that we would be free for, free of the punishment for a crime we did commit. And this is why Jesus was sacrificed. He sacrificed his own life so that we might have our sins forgiven. He sacrificed a royal throne so that he might be crucified in our place. He placed himself effectively on the altar. The altar, that is the cross. Where he was sacrificed to deal with the punishment for our sins once and for all. And this means that anyone who does what the second criminal did will now share what the second criminal has. Anyone who acknowledges before God their sin, their wrongdoing, their rebellion against God, and anyone who recognises that Jesus is king, if you want to be in his kingdom, if you're not already, Jesus will say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. If you're already a follower of Jesus, you know this, don't you? You know this in your heart, that you need not fear the day when you die or Jesus returns because he will look at you and call you by name as a loyal servant in his kingdom. But it may well be that you don't have that certainty yet. You're just not sure what will happen to you on the day that you die and you stand before Jesus. You might be trying to work out whether or not you've done enough good things to earn your favour in Jesus' sight. You might be trying to think what personal sacrifice you can make for yourself so that you might somehow deal with your own sins and not have to hand them over to somebody else. But you cannot offer enough to pay for your own sins and get away with it. You are as guilty as the criminal's. As am I. And yet all we need to do is stand helplessly before Jesus and say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he will say, surely today you will be with me in paradise. And it's all because of this one thing that we talk about time and time again, and that is grace. It is by grace you have been saved not by works. It's this free gift of forgiveness when we don't deserve it. And it's not something to be taken lightly because the man in the middle took it for you. 
And he did it in a humiliating way so that it might be possible for you to stand before him as innocent as Christ was. He now sees you. So you might feel that you've done too many bad things to be accepted by Jesus. Well, how do you reckon you stack up to the guy who was being executed? Capital punishment. I suspect you're not that bad. And yet Christ turned to him and said, I remember you in my kingdom, in paradise. This offer is for all of us this Easter. Most of us have accepted it, but perhaps if you haven't, this needs to be the Easter when you sort that out. And you may not know what to say. Well, I reckon that criminal who was hanging there, his, his whole breath was restricted by hanging there with his arms nailed to a cross and he had only a few words to say and he just turned to Christ and said, remember me. And that's all you need to do. Recognise him as king, submit to him and recognise that you are guilty and he will remember you in paradise. And so this Good Friday, it's a time for us again to come to the altar. It's not the altar that's in a church building or in a temple or something like that, but the altar is the place of the sacrifice. It's the sacrifice of Christ. And today we remember that altar, the cross, as we consider the death of Jesus. And so now we're going to sing a song in response to this of those same words. Thank you.